So I'm going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he'd lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing blessings that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray as we start this series in Ephesians that you would give us a great deal of encouragement in the beautiful promises that have been given to us in Jesus and also, Lord God, help us also to be really clear how to live as Christians in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to everyone here tonight and welcome to everyone online. Um, tonight we're beginning a new series in Ephesians and that's why I'm going to start by reading a passage from Matthew chapter 13. So if you open your Bibles to Matthew 13, um, Jesus once told a story of a man who found an expensive treasure buried in a block of land. It's a very short story, it only goes for one verse. Here's the verse. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Well, what's Jesus trying to get across with that? Um, well, I think what he's saying is that the kingdom of heaven is so precious that it's like a guy's going along looking at this block of land that he's thinking of buying and he kicks some box on the middle of the block of land that's half buried and the lid pops open and in it he sees this buried treasure that he's found, this huge treasure. So he goes, awesome. If I buy this block of land that's for sale, I'm going to get this box of treasure. And then he thinks to himself, but actually I don't have enough coin to go and buy this field unless I sell everything I've got. So he's so convinced that this treasure is so valuable that he goes back and he sells everything he's got so that he's got enough money and he comes up presumably to the owner of the field and he says I'd like to buy your field. The guy goes yeah no worries. He gets what he wants because he just wanted the money for the field and to his joy this guy gets the box 
and the field. What is Jesus trying to say here is, as we said, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a valuable treasure. But just like the hidden box in a field, sometimes that valuable treasure, the kingdom of heaven, remains a little hidden in our world today, as it did in the time of Jesus. Sometimes it's not looked for, but it can be stumbled across. And if you do stumble across the kingdom of heaven, what joy is yours? Well, the interesting thing about this story is not only that the kingdom of heaven is described as so precious, and obviously Jesus is encouraging those of us who follow him to have the same mentality as the guy who buys the field, that we would be willing to put the kingdom of heaven first because it's so valuable to us as Christians, and I am speaking to those of us who are Christians tonight, but if you're not a Christian here tonight, you might also just want to have a think about this and listen along tonight because it's like, this is actually a really good way of explaining the Christian faith. It's incredibly valuable. It's not just another thing that Christians have in their array of investments. It's, it's the most important thing. It's so valuable that if, if we had to, many of us would sell everything if that's what it took to keep the kingdom of heaven. But the thing about this passage that I really love and the reason I wanted to introduce the Ephesians series on this passage is that I think this, this little parable of Jesus raises two questions. And the two questions are, what was in the treasure? It doesn't say, yeah, it says the box was the kingdom of heaven, but what's in the box? What's in the kingdom of heaven that makes it so valuable? That's the first question. Second question is, if you find a box like that in the field and he goes and he buys the field and he gets the box, what does he do with it? Now, interestingly, I think Ephesians answers those two questions, and particularly Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Ephesians is a letter that has been written to the church at Ephesus. There's a picture of a map here that's going to come up on the screen. You might not be able to read it. It's a bit far away. But that's Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and in the time of the Roman Empire, it was considered, broadly that area, was considered to be the Roman province of Asia. And you can see a few uh, dots on that map there, the kind of churches that got planted around uh, on the coast there. But the main one there is Ephesus. And the reason Ephesus is the main one is Ephesus uh, was a city that was established by the Romans uh, after they took it over from the guys and ladies who had it before them. In 133, they made it their capital of the whole Roman province of Asia. So Ephesus, even though it's just another dot on that screen, it's actually like a capital city, just like Sydney is the capital of New South Wales. You got that? So this is the capital of a whole province, and as a result, it's a very important place. Now, one of the reasons the Romans made it a capital is it had a fine harbour, and the harbour made it an important trading highway to the east because back in the day there were no planes and there were no superhighways and there were no trains and the fastest way to get goods around the Mediterranean was actually by boat. So you'd take it to a big port and then that port would then distribute it to the rest of the country. So because of the harbour, Ephesus became the greatest commercial city of the whole province. So not only is it a, a, a place of political power, it's also a place of economic power. In some ways it's very similar to Sydney. Sydney is an international city. It's one of the big international cities of the world and we are a harbour city and we are a provincial capital. And so just like uh, Sydney, Ephesus was a very rich place. There was a lot of commercial power in the days that Paul was writing to these Christians. But not only uh, that, but it was actually a religious capital as well. Often you'll find that when you've got something that's politically powerful, often that becomes a religious capital too. And we, we uh, get introduced to uh, the city of Ephesus in the book of Acts, particularly in Acts 19, where Luke spends a bit more time talking about the, the place. 
But basically on Paul's third missionary journey, he visits Ephesus and the surrounding uh, cities. And he stops in Ephesus and he mainly stays there to teach in the church at Ephesus. So he saw this as a really important place to base his teaching ministry. So he stays a couple of years in Ephesus. And as he's there, though, he gets a lot of pushback. So what ends up happening is the, there's a riot in the city because of all the uh, sorcery and the evil powers. Uh, the, the majority of religion was pagan. And so while they tolerated the Jews, when the Christian sect came away from the Jewish sect, the, the, the city inhabitants are going crazy because Paul is teaching and people are listening and becoming Christians. And so many people are becoming Christians that the, uh, the idol makers are running out of business around the, the Mediterranean, things like that. So there's a lot of opposition. But despite the opposition, we read in Acts 19 verse 10 that it actually is the case that just as it's a provincial capital, a spiritual capital for paganism and a commercial capital, it ends up becoming the Christian capital of the area too. Because from Ephesus, the Christians are so faithful that they actually, uh, look what it says there, they went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard about the word of the Lord. So from Ephesus went this teaching and went out all across um, the, the Asian uh, peninsula there. Now, when Paul writes to these Ephesians, most scholars think that he wrote this letter that we're studying tonight from prison in Rome. And we think that that was somewhere around 61 AD to 62 AD. And if that doesn't mean anything to you, that's approximately 30 years after Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven. So it's like Paul talking to these people about Jesus at this time is like me talking to you about when Nirvana first launched. Now, I might not know everything about Nirvana. I think Paul knew a lot more about Jesus than I know about Nirvana. But if I talk about Nirvana, some of you will go, who's Nirvana? Because some of you have forgotten. But it's only 30 years ago that the band called Nirvana came onto the scene. So this is very contemporary, this stuff. What Jesus has done is, is actually impacting the world just within 30 years of his ascension. It's actually quite incredible how quickly the gospel spread. So let's have a look at this letter that Paul talks to the Ephesians in. It's the... Um, the, the letter to the Ephesians, but because of the structure of the letter, what you're going to see is that it's not just really just particularly to the Ephesians. Unlike a lot of other letters of Paul, he doesn't actually have a problem that he's trying to address, um, which is actually quite unusual for the church, wouldn't you agree? Um, usually the ch we're pretty racked with problems just generally, like, and we experience that in our day and age, but if you think we've got problems, mate, go back to Corinthians and have a read of 1 Corinthians. And if you think the Corinthians had some problems, you should have gone to Galatia and read the Galatians. Oh, my goodness. In Galatians, Paul doesn't even start politely. He says, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? That's how upset he is when he writes the Galatians. But when he comes to Ephesians, what's so beautiful about this letter is it's kind of like a circular letter. It's just like a letter to all Christians. And what I love about this, and I've loved about this letter for so many years, is this is written to all of us, not just to those people in Ephesus. But because I know Ephesus, which is a similar situation to we are in Sydney, it's a very similar kind of context, I get a lot of encouragement to not focus on the everyday around me only, that I've got to lift my eyes to see what Jesus is doing in this moment. Because really, that's what Ephesians is on about. You see, Ephesians is sometimes being called the summary of Romans. Now, if you know your Bible, you know Romans, it's a pretty long letter. Ephesians is not as long, and Colossians is not a long one. If, uh, Romans is like a description of the gospel. 
for the first 11 chapters and then from chapter 12 onwards it describes how to put that into practice. Ephesians is the same structure. So the structure of Ephesians is chapter 1 to 3 describes the gospel and it describes what is so precious about the kingdom of heaven. And then the second half of the letter describes how to use it. And that's why earlier I said, I think Ephesians answers the question of what did the guy find in the box and what did he do with it? In fact, the whole of Ephesians is a briefer version of Romans. And actually, if this is a bit too long for you, read Colossians, because that's shorter again. But Colossians has exactly the same format as well. Half about the gospel, half about how to put it into practice. There's something in that for us today, that Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's actually about putting it into practice. And sometimes in my life, when I felt far from God, I've turned around somewhere in the midst of that and gone, I don't think I'm actually trying to put this into practice. Yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in it, but it's amazing how when you're actually putting your faith into practice, how it comes alive. Even little things, hey. Even little things. Well, that's the structure of Ephesians. And I reckon it would be really fun tonight if, as we look at chapter 1, we actually answer the two questions of what's in the box and what are we going to do with it. So let's have a look at that in this first section uh, in two halves. The first half is the introduction. Well, it's not even a half, really. It's just two sections. The first section is only two verses long. It's called the introduction. And the second one I'm going to call the treasure of the kingdom. And that's from chapter 3 to... uh, Sorry... Verse 3 to verse 14. So let's have a look at it. The introduction. What does Paul say? Can we throw up the introduction on the screen, please? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, often when we read a letter and it says something like, Dear Tracy and Graham, you read that and then you go straight into what's the letter about? In early letters in these times, they didn't just say, Dear Ephesians. I've written to you. They actually had a lot of meaning in that first section. So the introduction to a letter actually has some things that we can discover about our question of what's in the box and what are we going to do with it. And the starting point of of, uh, Paul here is he says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So first, first of all, Paul is speaking authoritatively about the gospel. So we can actually take this uh, as the fact that the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write this. So while Paul has written this letter, it's been inspired by God because Paul himself was called by Jesus. He met him on the road to Damascus. He was converted by Jesus himself and that was by the will of God. So that's who the writer is. We can have confidence in what he says, right? That's the first thing. Second thing is to God's holy people. So we get who is writing the letter and now he's talking who he's speaking to. Now this always amazes me. Because Paul writes this kind of logic in almost all his letters, except for Galatians, as I said. He seems to put a really high priority on Christians. He makes us sound better than I think we sometimes are. See, sometimes I look at my Christian life and I think, oh, I don't know if I'm a very good Christian. I don't know if I'm a very good minister. And then when I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, I feel almost embarrassed how... Paul talks about the Christians. But he's not talking just the Ephesians now, he's talking to us and he says, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't always feel holy. I, always, I don't always live holy. 
You know, to be holy is to be set apart and live differently to other people and to live for God instead of for myself. And I presume that, like me, most of us fall short of that. And am I always faithful? No, I'm not always faithful. Because I do fall back on this default of I want to please myself and live in the moment. But what Paul's saying here is the really beautiful thing about Christianity is we actually are holy and faithful if we trust in Jesus. If we put our faith in Jesus, what Paul's going on to say in this letter is he has made you holy and faithful based on what he has done for you, not based on what you do. The reason I try and be holy and faithful is because I have been made that way. If I am a sponge cake with strawberry icing and candles, I want to behave like I've been made. I want to be put on a table and I want my candles to be lit. And as I am lit on the table, I want everyone to look at me and go, wow, what a nice sponge cake. And even though it's post-COVID, I love a good blow out the candles, blow the COVID all over the cake, I say. You can come talk to me later if you think that's really irresponsible of a pastor to say that. But if I'm a birthday cake, I want someone to blow those candles out and then I want someone to get the knife out and, you know, oh, embarrassingly, oh, I don't want to cut it. No, no, you cut it. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to. Yeah, okay, I'll cut it, I'll cut it. And then you cut it and you hit the bottom. You've got to kiss someone. I, I love all that. I, I don't do that to become a cake. I do that because I am a cake. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote for Twitter. <laughs> and that's what Paul is saying here. You are a cake, so be a cake. And if you ever feel like you're not a very good cake, don't worry, because verse 2 says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul's not writing this letter to you tonight. It's God who is writing it to you. Do you feel discouraged? Do you feel downhearted? Do you feel like you're not a very good Christian sometimes? Be encouraged. God has made you holy and he will give you grace and peace to be okay about growing in your sanctification. So don't, don't tonight sit here thinking this is for really on-fire Christians who are the, the best Christians. This is for everyday Christians because we're all birthday cakes. We're all birthday cakes. Let's go in and see what happens if we're birthday cakes. When we read this letter, what Paul's really saying there at verse 2 is, I am hoping that as you read this letter, you will understand the grace and peace of God better. The truth about how God sees you and what he's done for you will then transform your life. Does that make sense? Now, here's a good example of that. On week away, some of you will remember that I broke down. Hands up if you heard that I broke down in my combi van. No one cares. All right, so <laughs> I'm going to be quick on this analogy. Basically, that was a joke, by the way. I'll smile. Just joking. Um, <laughs> awkwardly, up the front, he says. I broke down in my car, right? Thank you. That, that's, it took a while, but that, that was all I wanted. Anyway, I break down in my car, but for illustration for tonight's sermon, what I'm saying is this. I thought I'd thrown a rod in my car, which is bad, because that's cost $5,000 in a new engine or a Rico. And I spent the whole week going, I think I've lost my car. I don't know if I can put another five grand into that combi van. I've put a fair bit into it. And then I get a phone call from my, um, my what do you call those guys, mechanics, and, and he goes, hey, Stewie, um, he goes, yeah, man. I said, yeah, no, I said, yeah, man. He goes, Stewie, um, 
did you put diesel in your car? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, surely not. And he goes, Stewie, I think you put diesel in your car. And you know what, man? Instead of spending five grand, you only have to spend 600 bucks. <laughs> you! How good's that? So a little bit of bruised pride, and I get my car back for 600 bucks. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is, sometimes we can be too hard on ourselves. Sometimes we think the things that are broken in our Christian faith are fatal. How could God love me when I am such a terrible Christian? Surely I've thrown a rod this time. Surely God's going to, oh, I've put a lot of investment into this Christian. I don't know, another 5K into this Christian? I don't know. You know what? God doesn't think like that. He never thinks like that. Because for one, what Jesus did on the cross was enough to give you every spiritual blessing you need to be a Christian. See, the beautiful thing about Christianity is what Jesus has done for you, the truth of that transforms you. And in 1 Peter, Peter reflects on this, and he's probably one of the best broken-down combi van Christians I've ever seen, the number of things he's, he's blown over the time. Jesus keeps setting him right all the time. And he himself said, you know what, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he said, it's actually the Holy Spirit that is sanctifying me to be like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Not only does Jesus save me, but he also makes me more godly when I fall short. Now, the question for us tonight is, do you want to work with him on that? And if you do want to work with the Holy Spirit as he makes you uh, better and better as a Christian, all we've got to do is change the spark plugs because they've got diesel in them and drain the engine of all the diesel and fill it back up with petrol. Do you want to be filled up again tonight? Are you happy to say that sometimes you put the wrong fuel in your engine? Do you want the right fuel? Well, that's what the man in the field found. He found the right fuel for his life, the treasure that is going to be described here as the treasure of the kingdom. So buckle in, because the where, the where this starts is where, with our hearts. And what we value, what we love in our hearts is what changes our actions. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the fuel of your heart that Jesus offers you is enough for you to be a Christian. You don't need anything else. Don't let anybody tell you that there's two classes of Christians. The Christians who have the kind of like, oh yeah, just that you became a Christian, you got Jesus and the Holy Spirit and that stuff. But I'll tell you what, we've got some new stuff here too. You don't, bolt, you don't have bolt-ons in the Christian life because Jesus has already given you everything you need. To show you what I mean by that, what Paul is going to say as he goes on from verse 3 and onwards, he says, God's actions in Christ lead to our future in Christ. And that makes sense from a car point of view, doesn't it? The petrol you put in your car means you either get <laughs> 10 metres down the road and blow a whole heap of smoke and sound like you've wrecked your engine, or you get all the way down to Nara. Do you want to get to the end? Do you want to stand before God one day on Judgment Day and, and do you want him to say to you, do you want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into joy today? Well, you have everything you need to hear those words because Jesus gives them to you. And all he's asking you tonight is partner with him, trust him, embrace this treasure and then you'll be able to see it yourself to the end. So what's the treasure? Let's go through it quick. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 to 6 the first thing that is a treasure is God's grace to you this is what Paul says 
in verse 4 to 6. His grace to you is that he chose you, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, and in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace given us in the one he loves. Now let's just think about that for a minute. God loves you so much that according to Ephesians verse 4, he knew you before the creation of the world. He knew you before the creation of the world. He chose you before the creation of the world. He chose you to be holy and blameless in his sight. So no wonder Paul started the letter so confidently saying that Christians are holy because God knew those Christians before the creation of the world. He already chose them to be holy. Now, I don't know if you've ever, and, and, and there is a rugby league game on at the moment, but I don't know if you've ever stood next to a rugby league player who's a forward. Have you ever stood next to a rugby league player who's a forward? I'm telling you, you look at people who play rugby league in the forwards and you think to yourself, I could not stop that person if I tried. I once said to Sam Tagatese, who was bigger than me and wider than me in every, every single muscle, I once said to him, Sam, could I just tackle you just to try and see if I could tackle you? Because I thought, that can't be that hard, surely. Sam said, Stuart, if you try... Sam Tagatese was a rugby league player for Cronulla, he's retired now. But Sam said, Stuart, if you try and tackle me, I'll break you like a twig. <laughs> if Sam Tagatese would break me like a twig, what would God do to me? If God says I'm holy, who am I to say I'm not holy? It's nice, isn't it? And who is going to challenge God and say, no, Stuart's not holy, he's, he's, he's an idiot. God's like, he's holy. I chose him before the creation of the world. I chose you before the creation of the world. And he did that in love. Look, he predestined us. Why did he choose us before the creation of the world? He chose us to be adopted. I love talking to people who've been adopted. And some of you here today might be adopted. I love it when people tell me, you know, here I am lying in my little cot going, yeah, cool, or whatever, however old you are when you get adopted, just hanging out. All of a sudden, these people come along and go, hey, I want you. It's kind of nice, eh? It's kind of nice when you get born into a family, but it's kind of special when you get adopted because you get chosen by the parents. That's really cool. I love that. And that's what happens to all of us. And when it says we're chosen for sonship, it's not a category of gender. It's a category of theology. It's a category that in the time of writing, only sons would inherit the father's possession. And so we've been all adopted as sons, men and women, so that we all earn the inheritance that our Father gives us through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure. And why does he do it? Why does he choose us and call us to believe in him? Because he is given so much glory and we give him so much love. When you give someone a present at Christmas time and they don't say thank you to you, it's a bit of a bummer. But if someone actually knows that it's not actually the present that matters, but the fact that you thought of them and you gave them something nice that matters, that's really special, isn't it? Isn't it delightful when we turn around to God and say, thank you? Now, this is a hard concept for many Christians. Many Christians say, well, if God chooses me, what's my role in that? And if he chooses me, why doesn't he choose everyone? I'd like us to have a conversation about that as a church over the next month or so. It would be wonderful over dinner if anyone wants to come talk to me about this. But here's the thing, we are told here in scriptures that God chooses us, yet we know from other scriptures that we have responsibility to respond to that with our own 
Yes, I want to be a Christian. Even in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which we keep coming back to this year, it's going to be a key passage for us this year. Jesus says, Behold the kingdom of heaven. What does he say? Do you remember yet? Repent and believe. They're two responses, aren't they? So that it is according to us. We need to respond to the gospel. But here we're told the way to respond is by letting God draw us to himself. And that's God's grace. The second thing is in verse 7 to 8. God's grace in redemption and forgiveness. Because you see, the problem is, it's one thing for God to adopt us, but how? We have a problem. Because all of us have the same problem. All of us are rebelled against God, whether we know it or not, because we are selfish and we sin and we don't live our lives according to what God has called us to live. So if we're going to be adopted, something has to happen with that sin. Now, I was in a uh, Bible study years ago with a young bloke. I've told this story a couple of times. Uh, Brad and I were in a prayer meeting with this uh, few young people and one of the young blokes had come along for the first time and we were talking about the gospel and you can become a Christian if you want and, and he was pretty honest. He said, look, I've got a big brick wall between me and God. I can't even see him. I just wish I didn't have the brick wall. Well, I loved that that young 16-year-old who didn't know anything about the Bible was actually so theologically correct. He has an obstacle between him that he built himself. He's got an obstacle between him and God, and we all have that obstacle. It's called sin. And I'll tell you what, we lay that wall brick after brick, don't we? We're constantly putting bricks on top of that wall. And so what are we going to do? Now, that guy in that that, uh, uh, prayer meeting said, "I I need something to get rid of the wall. And I remember Brad goes, all right, let's pray. So he just started praying and he goes, dear God, I pray you get out a big jackhammer and knock down the wall. And again, my young friend Brad, who was a lot younger than he is today, was theologically accurate because Jesus has jackhammered the wall. How good is that? So here's all these precious promises, but how do we become sons of God? How do we become heirs? How do we go to heaven? How do we live in the kingdom of heaven forever? If we've got a wall between us, well, Jesus goes, give me the jackhammer and I'll knock that sucker down. I'll knock it down. But see, this is where we need to work with him as he does it. He chooses us and we have to respond as well. And I encourage you tonight that here in verse 7 to 8, two words stand out. Redemption for forgiveness. What is redemption? Well, we don't have cash converters around too much these days. I don't know if you heard of cash converters. There used to be a show on TV called Porn Kings and it wasn't the other porn. It was P-A-W-N, Porn Shop. You know those ones where you go along and you take something like your bike and you give it to them and you say, I'll come back and buy it again. You know, give me 20 bucks and I'll come back with my 20 bucks when I have some more money, I'll get my bike back. Redemption is that, buying back. So the only way to get rid of the wall of sin is someone has to pay for it. And it's the blood of Jesus that pays for it there in verse 7. And through the blood of Jesus, we have redemption. He buys us back and we have the riches of his glorious grace, that in verse 8 he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. It's real exciting to know that these ideas are the treasures that are in the box. The treasures that are in the box are election and adoption. You can just imagine the guy, he's got his field, he's pulled the box out of the ground, he opens the lid, maybe he's only seen a corner of it and it's just a little glimmer coming out of it, but now he's opened the lid and what does he see in there? He sees election. God chose me to buy this field. He wanted me to have it. Isn't that nice? 
God's not just sitting back on his throne going, hey guys, how you going? Hey, um, I'm here, just letting you know. If anybody's keen to hang out, I'll just be here. <laughs> Didn't Jesus tell a parable, hey? He had a hundred sheep in a pen. And one of the sheep got lost. And what did the farmer do? He locked the gate so the 99 were safe. What did he do? He went looking for the other sheep. Do you ever feel like you get lost? Do you ever feel like you get caught in briars and you get all mixed up in stuff that's actually bit by bit just kind of taking you away a little bit? It's okay. Because Jesus loves you so much that he leaves the rest of them in the pen and he comes and says, come on, let's go. Come back. And that's the treasure. I'm wanted. I count. I mean something to God. And he chose me to be his son, his heir. The second thing is he's willing to die so that I can come back into relationship with him. And he'll forgive everything I've done. And he takes my sin and he throws it as far away as the east is from the west and remembers it no more because he loves me. And boy, does he get glory for his name when he does that from me and from you and from you and from you. Look at the combined glory God has got in this room because of what Jesus has done for all of us. And if you're sitting here tonight going, yeah, but not me, I don't think so. Well, let me encourage you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. What God has done, that treasure, affects how we live. He made known the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. To be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things under heaven and earth. You know, salvation is not just a nice thing he's done for you and me. It's actually his plan to reverse the chaos of sin that was brought about by Adam and Eve so that he can bring everything back into order and get rid of evil once and for all. It's the centre of his purpose to have Jesus die on a cross and rise from the dead. And so with that mystery revealed, what we know now is what thousands of years of generations of people who followed God were wondering about. And do you know, even the angels didn't know how God was going to get rid of the brick wall between you and God. But then when they saw Jesus die on the cross, they're like, has something gone wrong? Three days later, you can just imagine them over the weekend, the poor angel's going, oh, okay, this is not good. He's still there. <laughs> He's still there. <laughs> but then on Sunday, the angels went, ah, now I get it. And all the people who've been looking into these things have now seen the mystery. And that's what this is saying. We sit here today knowing the mystery of how we are saved. You know, that's everything, isn't it? You don't need anything else to know how you can be with God forever in the kingdom of heaven. You just need Jesus. Unlike some of his other letters, Paul puts more focus on the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus up into heaven, even more, the cross is central, but the, the resurrection, the ascension, the new life is a big theme that we're going to enjoy in this series. And can I leave you with this? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, we see the outcome for our lives. So if the treasure has been described, then what is the guy going to do with it? Well, the answer is he's going to share it. That's what he's going to do. When you first read that parable of Jesus, you might think, wow, that guy's a bit selfish, eh? He goes and buys a treasure. He didn't tell the guy who owns the property that he's got a box of treasure in his property. Is he ripping him off because he 
Well, no, the guy's happy. He just wanted the money for the field. He's getting what he's wanting. But the interesting thing is, before you just assume that someone got the box of treasure and kept it to himself, Jesus doesn't say what he does with the treasure, but Paul says here in verses 11 to 14 what we do with the treasure that we're given. In him we're also chosen, having been predestined according to his plan, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who, verse 14, is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession in the praise of his glory. In other words, when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that you'll go to heaven. You become a birthday cake. Sometimes you might be sitting in the fridge for too long. I'm encouraging you to get out of the fridge. Come to the party. Don't keep the birthday cake to yourself. If your candles haven't been lit for a little while, get the lighter out. Get the box of redhead matches, give it a little shake, see if there's one or two left in it. They're in the second drawer on the left in your kitchen. Get the matches out, get the cake out, put it on the table and share it with everyone. Because Paul says we were the first who were chosen, the Jews, and we've been predestined according to the plan of God to be accepted into his kingdom and that's to the praise of his glory. But now you also who are not Jews, you Gentiles, are now included. You don't replace us. It's not like we were broken and now God's using you as the church instead. You non-Jews have been grafted in. In Romans, Paul says that the Jewish people like a tree and we've been like a wild olive branch that's grafted into the tree. You get that idea? Gentiles are now part of the people of God. It just got bigger. Why? Because Paul shared the story. He got his cake out of the fridge and he put it on the table in Asia Minor in Ephesus. He walked down the street in Asia Minor in Ephesus and started telling people about this story because you see the emphasis in verse 13, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. Now, I love it when people say, I want my life to be a story that people can read, but I'm telling you, they won't get it unless you tell them the story. They'll just think you're a nice person. What you need to be is a birthday cake that gets the candles out. And if it takes you a while to get your head around that, what I want to encourage you with and leave you with tonight is be the birthday cake first. Before you share the love, tap into the treasure and see what it does to your heart. Some of us are ready to chuck our cakes on the table and unfortunately sometimes when I light my candles, someone's put a bunger in there and it blows up the candle. I make mistakes when I try and share my faith when I lead this church, when I preach a message, sometimes I make mistakes. We all do, right? But don't let that fear of making a mistake stop you lighting the candles. But I tell you again, if you're not there yet, just be the cake. Because the key verse of the whole of Ephesians is verse 10, that things were put into effect when the times reached their fulfilment to bring unity to all things under heaven and under earth, under Christ. The great news is Christ has made your cake and he'll bring you out of the fridge when he's ready to use you in, your, in, in his part of the, the party. So everybody still might be eating the roast dinner. They might not be up to dessert yet. But get ready for dessert, eh? Because it's good fun. And it brings glory to God. And it's how you've been made to be. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for tonight that we can gather together as your people.
And I thank you, Father, that you have not left us out of this great story of redemption. I thank you, Father, for the treasure that you have shared with us. I thank you for your grace in electing us and adopting us to be your children. I thank you for your grace in redeeming us and forgiving us. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you've given us your Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance into eternity. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.